we just say we welcome the ministry of the sword of your spirit this morning. Have your way. This is your time, Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Everybody say amen. Well, David Wilkerson, in his latter years, he preached a sermon called Whatever Happened to Repentance that went around. Um, he mentioned, he mentioned this often, but he mentioned in the sermon the trend in American Christianity towards positive preaching that avoided anything that may be deemed as uncomfortable. But he reminded in this sermon in particular, and I think it's so helpful to remember, that when Jesus opened his mouth to preach, the first thing he said was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in that sense, repentance was always foundational to Jesus' ministry and to what he was calling us to. And although conviction can be uncomfortable, and a holy man or woman proclaiming a message of truth under the convicting presence of the Spirit can sting. Repentance is the only way that we'll ever have peace with God. You cannot truly be healed unless you turn. Well, Jeremiah's ministry uh, prophesies that the prophets of the day say, peace, peace. But the Lord says there is no peace. They've healed the wounds of His people lightly, meaning that His in the spirit, his people are wounded. Imagine some kind of disease. And the prophets say, peace, peace. And God says, there's no peace until you turn. So on the surface, it feels very gracious in American Christianity to say, our goal is to make everyone leave encouraged. Everyone to feel good when they walk out of the room. That feels gracious. But, but when you stop to ponder, it's, again, it is not gracious for the doctor to, to know you have cancer, but to tell you, uh, I just don't want you to feel bad about yourself, so you look A-OK to me. There's nothing gracious about that. My, again, my six-year-old, she must have been, maybe she was five, she, I, th I think she was probably four, um, she... I don't know how this girl gets into things, y'all, but she just does. She swallows what she tells us is a quarter. She swallowed a quarter. So my wife calls and says, Olivia, she swallowed a quarter. And I say, it's just a quarter. It'll be all right. It's not sharp. You know, that's the dad's role to bring it, bring it down. She says, let's go to the doctor. And so we go to the emergency room. They do a little x-ray. They say, yeah, she swallowed a quarter. It'll be all right. I say, told you. Doctor comes in about five minutes later and says, actually, that's not a quarter, that's a battery, which is, a, you know, like one of those little round batteries like you put in your watch, you know. My wife's like, told you. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't pass. And it goes a couple of days, and I, maybe she was five, but I think she was probably four. She's sensitive anyway. She's real sensitive. And uh, we have to go to Savannah, and they're going to have to take it out. They're going to put her to sleep. And she is nervous, you know, a four-year-old little girl being that nervous and break a daddy's heart, you know. And so they won't let us stay in the room when they're going to put her to sleep. we got to leave the room. And she's just a crying, crying, dad, dad. Um, and we keep telling her, it's going to be okay. you got to do it. you got to do it. It's going to be okay. Apparently a battery in your stomach is a pretty, pretty serious deal. Um, 
But there are times, and every dad knows this, and, and mama, there are times when you don't want your child to have to endure uh, maybe having a tooth pulled or going through surgery, me watching my four-year-old. I don't want my daughter to have to go into a room, a four-year-old girl to go into a room alone to be put asleep by people wearing masks. And But her health in this moment is more important than her happiness. And in the same sense, your holiness sometimes is more important than your happiness. And what we've done as a church, in the Western church, is we've made happiness and, and entertainment and pleasure our supreme values. But the consequence of that, when everything in church is supposed to make you feel happy, what we have now is a church who knows nothing of brokenness. And brokenness is profoundly important that you learn to be broken before the Lord over your sin, like Job over the sin sometimes of your family to really intercede for your children. There, there should be a place in the man and woman of God's life where they are broken over the sin of their nation, where you know tears before the Lord, where you really intercede. But when happiness is our supreme value, we'll do everything we can to avoid brokenness. And when we've avoided brokenness, we know nothing of repentance and we know nothing of intercession. And Psalm 51 is very much about brokenness. And I think, um, again, we're, we, you know, we're in a season of turmoil. We are. Um, but I think it's really important right now that the church would rediscover the brokenness that the scripture continually commends us to find. A broken and contrite heart, David wrote, Oh God, you will not despise. You will not reject. The prophet Isaiah uttered something very similar. The broken and contrite, you never turn your back on. And so the spiritual reality of the need for repentance is often like a broken bone that needs to be reset. It's not fun, but it's necessary. And the resetting process is painful, agonizing. The spiritually immature may even call it cruel. But when the Holy Spirit comes with conviction, it is the life-saving kindness of God. The immature may say when a man or woman proclaims truth under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that's cruel. But the mature recognize that that kind of truth proclaimed with the conviction of the Spirit presence is not cruel. It is, it is the spiritual bone, if you will, being reset. It hurts. It's agonizing. But by God, it is necessary. Now, throughout church history, many have considered Psalm 51 to be, some, some have called it an exposition of David's, remember last we talked about the two words he uttered when Nathan rebuked him. The two words he uttered in Hebrew, translated in English, are, I have sinned against the Lord. Some would say that Psalm 51 is David's later exposition of that idea. Um, this psalm is David's prayer of repentance as he works out before God that reality. I have sinned 
against the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, The psalm may be wept over, this psalm may be absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. But commented on, ah, he wrote, where is he who having attempted it can do anything other than blush in defeat? What Spurgeon was saying is that there are spiritual realities expressed in this psalm that sometimes are too deep for words. That we can do our best to comment on, and I'll give you my best on commenting on Psalm 51. But Spurgeon said what we need to do is read it, allow it to breathe in our souls, exhale devotion, but to recognize that what's happening here is sometimes too deep to articulate. And so with that idea in mind, this series is in no way an attempt just to exchange information. In every way, it's my prayer that you allow this psalm to impart to you the heart of David in this moment. That you learn the posture of a holy man broken before God. So this morning as we approach the word, I first I want to read to you all of Psalm 51. I'll read the whole psalm to you and then I'll circle back around and read to you just the first four verses which are what we'll focus on this morning. So if you would, turn your attention to the holy word of God. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And again, let me read to you just the first portion which we'll study this morning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So remember, we talked two weeks ago about David's sin. His sin is that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
got her pregnant, and then when he was unable to cover up his sin, he has her husband Uriah murdered so that he can marry Bathsheba, make it most likely look like he was redeeming the widow, caring for the fallen soldier's wife, and in reality, he's committed adultery and murder. And that chapter of Second Samuel closes with the words, And the Lord saw and was displeased. The next week we discussed Nathan the prophet coming to David the king and painting a picture of, for David of a man who's stolen a poor man's only sheep. And David condemns the man to death, says he deserves to die. And Nathan's rebuke is, no, you are that man. And so Nathan, the holy prophet, has rebuked David. And David's only response is, again, the two Hebrew words he mutters, um, I have sinned against the Lord. And so as David, under that conviction, after being rebuked by the holy man of God, in his mourning, in his sackcloth and ashes, he pens this psalm. I'd just like to say at the offset this morning that mourning our own sin from time to time is appropriate. We don't want to rush past the operation of the Spirit. Again, happiness and comfort will cause you to avoid the hand of God. And you'll do everything you can. Remember when James says that the man who reads the Word and walks away is like a man who looks in a mirror and forget what he looks like. You'll do everything you can to never have to look in a mirror and recognize your own ugliness. But if you avoid the reality of your own sinfulness, you'll never be able to take steps towards practical holiness. We got so good at, forgive me, I'm just talking here. We got so good at the Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We get good at quoting that to one another, but we never learn to discern what is condemnation from hell and what is conviction from the Spirit. So you need to be careful as you're ministering to someone, when someone comes to you in the brokenness of sin, and if your first response is, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you because you stand in Christ Jesus, what they may be experiencing is conviction from the Holy Spirit of their sin. And if you lead them straight to, the, to an understanding of what they're experiencing is condemnation, you'll rush them past what may be the ministry of the Holy Spirit trying to seriously purge their souls of wickedness. So you've got to have enough discernment, and you can't be so quick to run to there is now, therefore, no condemnation. We, we need to, be sh to help people to discern what is the voice of hell and what is the voice of God. But the teaching, again, it's really common in our culture. There's a teaching that says, um, God is always in a good mood and God wants you happy. He died so that you can be happy. Now, many who have made that comment later clarified, so I'm not throwing stones at any person. The biggest problem is the regurgitation of the line. But the line, God's always in a good mood. He's a good father who always looks at you with delight. There's truth to that. First, first theologically, you know God's not moody. Um, but there's truth that God, God loves us perfectly. But, but remember that the good love of a father 
will pull the, will pull the thorn out of your skin. And that the fact that he's trying to pull the thorn out of your skin is not his displeasure. It's his care. In, in the same sense, the good love of the father, in my case, makes the four-year-old be put to sleep and have the battery moved out of her stomach. Not because I don't love her, but because I do love her. And what we do is when people come to us in conviction, we say, no, God is only pleased with you. This is condemnation. Run from it. Ignore it. Ignore it. Ignore it. Ignore it. And it may be God with his holy tweezers trying to pull a thorn out of someone's flesh. So use discernment, friends. Now imagine David sitting in his own misery and his own conviction, fully convinced of his rebellion. He picks up his writing utensil and he begins to write and he opens with this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He opens by appealing to God's grace and God's mercy. And remember when the Lord passes before Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord declares, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David opens his psalm of repentance as he begins to pen. The first thing he does is recalls the mercy of God. Our worship is... Our proper worship should extol God's mercy and His grace. When Again, when God presented His nature to Moses, the first thing He said about Himself is, I am a merciful, gracious God, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Our worship should begin with calling on God's mercy because without God's grace and mercy, you and I would be utterly doomed. We are up the creek without a paddle. David begins with appealing to God's mercy. Now, again, if you just let me hash a thought out for a second, we don't want to go into sinfulness assuming God's mercy, right? For in David's scenario, for David to look on Bathsheba and say, oh, I'm going to go ahead and commit this adulterous act because I know theologically that God is merciful. Therefore, I can have an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and God will forgive me. That kind of assumption and presuming of God's mercy and grace is not actually relying upon God's graciousness. It's assuming that God's passive. To presume that God will be merciful, so I should go ahead and sin because God is gracious, is to assume not that God is a merciful, gracious, just God. It's to assume that God is a passive God. You know the kind of dad who says, if you come in after 10 o'clock, you break curfew tonight, I'm going to tear your butt up. And then he goes to sleep and pretends like he didn't realize that you came in late. That's passivity. That's not a justice-based God who is gracious and merciful. So we don't want to assume God's grace. You know, if you have a problem with, pick your sin, gossip or alcoholism or whatever. You have a problem and you're tempted with sin and then you start to say, God's gracious and God's merciful. So I'll just go ahead and do it because God's good. You don't want to act that way because that's, that's, that's strange and manipulates the character of God. But David's not manipulating the character of God here. He is now really broken over sin. So 
So he says, be merciful, God. Keep me in your steadfast love. And next, he says, cleanse me. He says, God, I need to be washed. He appeals to God's forgiveness, to his mercy, and then asks for forgiveness, but, but not just forgiveness, but a, but a washing, a cleansing. Blot out my transgressions, he wrote. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purify me, God. David is saying, literally, my inner man, my soul is stained with sin, is ate up with wickedness. My inner man is plagued with evil. God, bathe me, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, rid my soul of this sin. God, I've got to have cleansing. I can't deal with myself. He's saying literally, please God, don't leave me in this condition. He continues, I know my transgression. In his words, my sin is ever before me. He is unable to shake his own conscience. He lays down in bed at night and all he can think about is his own sin. He gets up in the morning and his stomach turns. He's unable to eat because his sin is ever before him. And so he tries to hide from it. He tries to, you know, keep his hands busy or be around people, but his sin, it haunts him. Unable to shake his own conscience. And this matters to you. Your conscience is the grace of God. It is a gift of God. Your conscience is your God-given sensibility towards evil. Your conscience is one of the distinct factors that separates us from the rest of the creative order. The distinction between a human and an animal to some extent is that you have the ability to act morally. And so you can reflect God's nature in a unique way because you have a conscience which allows you to discern between what is good and evil and you can operate out of goodness. And as you operate out of goodness, you reflect God's image. You are an image bearer of God with a conscience. But when you sin and you willfully sin, you fail to reflect God's nature, which he created you to do. And when you fail to reflect God's nature, your conscience, like a buzzer, goes off. And this is not what you were created for. Your gut sits funny and there's an uneasiness you toss and turn. Your conscience will keep your sin before you. You can't move on. You can't pretend like it's never happened. David tried to cover up his sin, but that doesn't work. It's always before his eyes. There's a really interesting... I don't want to get too far off topic here. There's a really interesting ideas. When you get into what theologians sometimes call the problem of pain or the problem of suffering. Why would a good God um, allow us to endure pain and suffering? There's huge arguments. C.S. Lewis wrote on it. Every, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine. Every theologian at some point addresses what's called the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. There's a really interesting argument concerning the necessity of pain, um, which I don't think solves the whole theological issue, but it's interesting nonetheless. 
There's a doctor who works primarily with lepers, with people who have uh, conditions that cause them to no longer have sensibility to the touch. And he, he points out that when someone has any of these conditions, which causes them to no longer feel, feel pain, they can't, you know, you can still use your hand, but you don't sense. He points out how dangerous it is because sometimes someone who's lost the sensibility in the hand will put their hand on the stove, but they have no acknowledgement that their hand is right now being burned. And so there's this argument that pain is very helpful because it's, it's the alarm to your body that something's not right. And so again, you have a thorn in your flesh and it drives you nuts. But, it's, but the pain is, is, is the God-given acknowledgement that something's not operating right. And the conscience is the same thing for the spirit. It's pain. It's annoying. It's nagging. But your conscience is, is the alarm, the God-given alarm, that something is not right. The Holy Spirit... What we call conviction is when the Spirit of God begins to move on your conscience. The, the weight of His presence and glory bears down on your conscience. And it bears before you the full acknowledgement of your sin. Now the problem lies in Paul's language. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, for instance, that the last days will be marked by liars, those who follow deceitful demonic spirits, and whose consciences have been seared. The problem lies when you and I allow our consciences to be seared, meaning that you can become calloused. The first time you lie or gossip or maybe the first time you took a step down the road of alcoholism, the first time you looked at a woman that you knew you shouldn't have been looking at or went to a website you knew you shouldn't have been going to, your stomach turned, you felt gross, you thought, God, I can't do that again. But the next time you were tempted, you, you argued, you reasoned your way into it, and you, be, you can begin to su- suppress your conscience. And after a while, you know, now you're knee deep in the sin and you've really got to suppress your conscience in order to be able to keep living out this temptation, this sin, which is bringing you some sort of pleasure. So you pursue pleasure at the sake of suppressing your conscience. And now we are thoroughly in a Romans 1 conversation. Romans 1 says that we are all aware, we have a knowledge of God, but we suppress that truth. The Greek there means we push it down, we hold it down, because if we ever allow it to pop back up, then we would have to face our own guilt and wickedness. And so your conscience becomes seared as with a hot iron. You've for so long ignored it. You've denied the voice of the Spirit. You've talked over it. You just keep talking over your conscience. Drown it out with all of the noise. And that's an incredibly dangerous place to be. When your conscience becomes seared. What is really interesting to think about. Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. He called the church the conscience of a nation. So collectively, the church who's called to be the salt of the earth the church collectively becomes the moral standard for a nation. It proclaims truth and proclaims righteousness. But what happens now when collectively our consciences become seared? 
So not only do we have individuals who are operating in sin openly, arguing against the conviction of the Spirit, suppressing their conscience with all of their being, so much so that they can't even hear the voice of God anymore. What happens when there's one or two in the church? What happens now when the majority of the church has suppressed the conscience? And the church's role as the conscience of the nation is now not operating and functioning because we have collectively argued against the Spirit. And that's a dangerous place for a nation. And I'm worried that that's where we've slid into. Again, when we made church about entertainment, when we made theology about pleasure, when we've reversed the roles where our job is to exalt God, the the function of the church is to express His glory and His majesty and His worth, is to proclaim His goodness, and we flipped it, and now the entire scripture is about God telling you how great you are. When we've flipped those roles, we've suppressed our conscience. And now our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. And the church is what we would call asleep. But it's because we've lived in sin for so long. We've ignored the voice of the Spirit and His role in our conscience. And our consciences collectively now have to some extent be seared. And we need God to move. We need God to move. How's your conscience this morning? Have you tuned it out, turned it off? When you go to turn on the TV at night, how's your conscience? Do you welcome the Spirit of God in your thought life to speak, to expose, to correct, to confront? Yes, to encourage. Yes, to speak truth that we're loved. Yes, the Spirit brings comfort. But the Spirit, like a good father, also brings correction. Do you welcome the Spirit of God in your thought life? Or has our pleasure-based society taught you to reject anything that makes you uncomfortable? The last thought in the opening verses of Psalm 51 that I want to explore with you as we get ready to close is this. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Of course, you've heard this talk before. That feels outrageous. David's sinned against Bathsheba. Some would argue that, that Bathsheba had no option but to commit that affair with David, and so in that sense, she was raped. The text doesn't bear that out, but that may be the case. He certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He's definitely, I mean, he's murdered Uriah, sinned against Uriah. There are multiple casualties in play. David sinned against many people, and so the question, how could he say, against you and you only have I sinned, Piper gives a really interesting explanation, and an explanation that I think it's worth us to pondering here for a minute as we get ready to close. The Greek word hamartia is the word for sin. And biblically speaking, the word for sin is always a vertical word. The word for sin, again, biblically speaking, means to assault God's glory. And so... From a a very practical standpoint, sin is not necessarily what we do to each other, but sin is what we do to God. It means to offend God's holiness, to neglect His commands, to distrust His instruction, to, like Adam and Eve, choose to exalt self above God in order to make yourself God-like. 
And in that sense, sin is first and foremost about your relationship with God. And as I kind of pondered these ideas, we, we talk a lot, and, and we should, and I, and I talk a lot, I'm, I'm guilty of this, certainly, um, about the fact that, that sin is destructive. Pick, again, pick your sin, I don't care. Gossip is destructive, it destroys your relationships. Your friends might sit around and listen to you gossip, but they don't trust you with a thing, okay? Um, gossip's destructive. It's destructive towards you, it's destructive towards another individual, um, and so you can go down the line, sin is always destructive. It, and there's never only one casualty. I've had young guys say to me, oh, I have a pornography problem, but it's not hurting anybody. Okay, you're, you're, you're helping to advance the pornography industry, which basically all but not preys upon young girls who have been molested almost hands down. The women in the pornography industry were sexually abused as children. You're, you're bolstering up an industry that's also... F- feeding into sex trafficking. Oh, your, your pornography is not causing anybody a problem. That's okay. You ever want to get married? Let's talk about what that's going to do to your wife. Your future romantic relationship. And, and I've had people try to argue my sin's not hurting anyone. You're, you're kidding yourself. Um, so sin is, is self-destructive. It hurts us. It hurts other people. And that's a good reason to argue for holiness. But there's a higher reason to argue for holiness. It's because your sin insults the glory of God. It dishonors him. There's a supreme reason to want to be holy. Because God says, be holy as I am holy. Because he created you with the intention of reflecting his goodness to the earth. As worshipers of God, we need to acknowledge that there's a higher call to holiness. It's not just about not hurting yourself. And I'd like to say this. When all is said and done, you will stand before God alone. Just be you and God. Um, We say that a lot. You'll stand before God alone one day. But I want to say to you that you stand before God alone today. When you lay down at night and your head hits the pillow, it's just you and God. And your spouse who you love, and I love my spouse. I really pick on her all the time, you know, but I'm, I'm crazy about my spouse. I love her to death. There's a day when she may go. It's just me and God. When I drive to work in the morning, just me and God. When I get up to pray, just me and God. You stand before God alone today. And sin will fracture the most fundamental relationship in your life. It will insult God, bring division in the most fundamental relationship, and you will never have peace until that relationship is healed. You can't shake God. He's omniscient, meaning he knows your thoughts before the words are on your lips. He's omnipresent. He's always with you. The psalmist said, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you're with me. You you can't shake God. It is fundamental to your entire being. You were created for communion with God. He is with you. It's like living a life that denies God, that, that, that runs from God. It's like living, and I'm using the words of the Proverbs, it's like living with a nagging spouse. You do everything you can to avoid it, to just smooth things over, to drain it out. But the tension will always be there. 
fundamentally, when you sin, you sin against the most basic relationship. And, and in actuality, the entire, um, entire makeup of your created being. You do acknowledge that you're created right. You're not your own God. You're created by a creator who created you for communion and with purpose. And as long as you sin, you run from that very fundamental relationship. And so when David says, I have sinned, he says, I have sinned against you and you alone, God. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, there are other things happening. But in light of the fact that he has denied God, everything else seems to fade away. You stand before God alone today. And you won't have peace until you make that relationship right. So in conclusion, I'll try to wrap this up neatly. Somebody from the worship team, come for me. Let's see if they just appear, just fall out of the sky. First, David in his brokenness, again, I, I want you to picture it. He's just been rebuked by the prophet. He goes and sits down on his butt with a pen and paper. He's weeping. Embarrassed, you know how you're embarrassed, especially when a holy man calls you out. That's real embarrassing. It's one thing for your neighbor who's a sinner to recognize that you're living in sin, but when a holy man gets you, you're embarrassed. He's embarrassed. Nathan's called him out. And he sits down, he's weeping, and the first thing he does is he appeals to God's mercy. Be merciful to me, God. The second thing he does is he says, God, my soul is stained with iniquity. Cleanse me. I've got, you cannot leave me in the sinful state. God, purge me of my sin. David doesn't allow his conscience to become seared. He says, my sin is always before me. I'm not running from my conscience. I'm not trying to talk over my conscience. I'm not trying to suppress the truth of the spirit that's being revealed. My sin is before me. He's owning it. Here I am. And the last thing he does is he says, it's against you and you only have I sinned. I have assaulted your glory. I've dishonored your goodness. Oh, God. And is there a place for the church in the West to sit on our butts and own our sin and to acknowledge that the holiness of God has meant nothing to us for decades. We've been so consumed with us being entertained and us being happy and we've flipped the gospel message entirely on its head and made the scripture totally about us. This, this book we've made, we've read ourselves into every line and crevice. But it's about God. It's intended to reveal his character. If you would for a moment just bow your heads
Seth, go ahead and sing for us for a moment. Altars are open. Oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for not allowing your word to bear its full weight down upon us.